Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable coming right up. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's and world history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, Ruth also serves as a member of the board of directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth is back with us here in the studio again after a very difficult year. Welcome back, Ruth. How are you? I'm actually fine, as far as I can tell. Okay. You know what? Feeling kind I, th- I, think, in this I think we have to have you on that mic. Okay. I'm feeling a little disoriented in the real world. Is this reading, Scott? There you go. That's right. Okay. I'm a little disoriented in the real world. Me too. We're, in the studio, we're not too. used to having you here. I uh, know. Anyway, I'm glad you're back here. And joining us on the phone today is Richard Hill, host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand, and a rotating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. Great to have you on the phone today, Richard, which is a switch. Yeah, great to be there in any form I can uh, make it. Thank you. We have a, a very interesting show today. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs Monday evenings, 8 to 10 p.m., and executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, uh, which both Ruth Ann as well as Richard are contributors. In just a moment, we're going to be joined by Doug Henwood, journalist and author who will talk about the significance of Joe Biden's effort to leave the austerity economy of the past behind to address some of the systemic failures of the U.S. economic system. And Nora Massey will be here later to this morning as well. She's a member of the Yale University College class of 222. And uh, we're going to be talking about her recent opinion piece titled, It's Time for a Connecticut Green New Deal. Let's hear from Ruth Ann first about what she's been thinking about in these uh, very interesting and, uh, uh, you know, I think nation-changing times where we have a new administration in office that's uh, putting forth some interesting and positive initiatives. Well, um, most recently I was reading The Daily Beast, 
to which I actually occasionally do subscribe. Um, Yael Eisenstadt writes in The Daily Beast that he learned by being hired by Facebook to clean up the Cambridge Analytica mess that Facebook's relationship with the politically powerful was more important to them than fact-checking. He calls the Facebook Oversight Board's ban on Donald Trump's political posts less about Donald Trump's freedom of speech than about Facebook's power. I see yet another dimension in the issue, and it's an extension of Trump's attitude toward reality in general. Reality is just as malleable in his mind as the words used to describe it, and his listeners, or at least his fans, will accept his definitions and go from there rather than think for themselves. Calling lying and verbal abuse free speech is Trump's way of elevating and then validating it. Lying, abuse, and incitement to riot are not forms of speech protected by the U.S. Constitution, but if he can get enough people, maybe even individuals recently elevated to the Supreme Court, to ignore that fact, he'll have his support. Words are, to the grand old party, just words. Have you gotten in the mail one of the pocket-sized constitutions Rand Paul is sending out so patriots can shake them in some liberal's eye? That man must have some really big pockets. His booklet is thinner than a typical paperback book, but it's noticeably longer and wider. The ACLU used to mail out constitutions that actually would fit in your shirt pocket. I have one. This ain't that. Trump doesn't seem to have read the Bill of Rights anyway. At least he would not use the freedom of speech for its legitimate purposes, to tell the truth and examine opinions. He seems incapable of telling the truth, in my opinion. But he'll repeat a lie over and over, and some media outlets will, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, pick it up and multiply it. So far, Facebook is trying to stand up to Trump, but Eisenstadt warns that Facebook cannot be trusted to self-regulate against what it sees as its business interests by hiding behind the false notion of valuing free speech above all else. Creating a so-called oversight board, he says, did nothing to change that. And Trump cannot turn lies and slanders into free speech just by telling you that's what they are. Or, as we learned this morning in The Times and The Washington Post, claim to advocate freedom of the press while using government offices to spy on reporters. Nor can Rand Paul make a book fit in your shirt pocket by telling you it will. Oh, very good. Richard, what would you like to... Uh, actually, I'm going to go in a second. I forgot to, our order here. Um, my... Uh, my rant this morning is also from the Daily Beast. Are we getting any payola from those guys? Uh, I wish, when well, maybe we can. <laughs> All right. Well, in a Daily Beast interview with Molly Jung Fast, former presidential candidate and one-time chairman of the Democratic National Committee and former Vermont governor Howard Dean says he believes the Republican Party are now a neo-fascist party. He maintains that the Republican Party has suffered a total moral collapse and is now held together by a bunch of nutcases happy to endorse autocracy and neo-fascism. Obviously, uh, we've got Howard Dean uh, really uh, saying what he feels. He's not planning to run for office again, and um, he's kind of unbound. Dean said there are still one or two decent Republicans in Washington, but they lack the backbone to stand up to the people who have taken over the party. I hate to call Republicans right-wing fascists because often they supported me. But this is a re unrecognizable, he said. They believe in autocracy, not democracy. They're racist. It's just shocking what's happened to the Republican Party. After the January 6th insurrection, Dean said the need to keep these people from power has become urgent. And he called on members of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to follow the lead of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in moderating their language while continuing to push their agenda within the democratic framework because the alternative 
a Republican administration containing the likes of Senator Josh Hawley and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is too alarming. These people are crazy, Dean says. They're conspiracy theorists. They're whack jobs. They're embedded in their own reality. I mean, if they ever really run the country, it's going to be a disaster for us because this is why autocrats don't run good economies because they start believing their own BS. This is all from Howard Dean. He also says, you have a Republican Party which emotionally essentially are neo-fascist. They fundamentally do not believe that another legitimate point of view exists other than theirs. Former governor of Vermont said he had never seen a Biden supporter. He had never been a Biden supporter, rather, but he's been stunned by the president's performance so far and is pleased he wasn't making the same mistake as President Barack Obama, who spent too much time waiting around for bipartisan support. Bernie Sanders said that Biden's Rebuilding America bill was the most progressive piece of legislation he'd seen since Johnson and his war on poverty. And, I mean, it is, Dean said. I think he's probably off to the best start of any president I've seen in my lifetime. So that's from Howard Dean. And we could all sort of agree or disagree with a lot of what he said, but I think his his diagnosis of what's going on in the Republican Party is on the money. Richard, what say you? How would you like to begin this morning's show? Yes, let me uh, just um, get my screen here in uh, focus. So um, we're having Doug Doug Henwood today who's going to tell us uh, some, um, I think, uh, very enlightening things about the switch between austerity and free-spending government and... uh, you know, the, the uh, reasons why this uh, abrupt change of direction took place. And uh, so that made me think of the, uh, there, there might be some chicanery and ruse involved in, uh, in what we've been experiencing for the past 40 years in this country. And uh, so I look back at, uh, at what we call the Cold War which supposedly ended in 1990-ish when uh, Gorbachev uh, initiated Glasnost and the Soviet Union and the other Eastern uh, socialist countries abandoned socialism. Um, It's beginning to be apparent that the Cold War will continue apace under the Biden administration with continued hostilities toward Russia, which is no longer a socialist country, and uh, a coming collision with China, which is a mixed economy with huge investments from U.S.-based multinationals. And uh, what I consider to be the most cancerous polyp uh, of uh, American foreign policy, the continuation and tightening of the U.S. embargo on Cuba uh, along with the attempt to destroy the Bol- Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela and support for the coup uh, that ousted Evo Morales in Bolivia, among other really horrible policy uh, moves that um, started really not under Biden, but uh, under um, Obama even, and continued through worsen through Trump, and, and, but Biden is making no signs of changing those policies. Uh, that particular feature of American, the, the American agenda, this foreign policy, you know, this rigid 
uh, anti-communist uh, Cold War posture seems to be part of our permanent government, and it never seems to change. Nothing shakes it loose. So I was listening to Richard Wolff, who is a radical economist who broadcast his economic update on this station Fridays at 7.30 p.m., and he has an interesting take, pardon me, some water there. Um, he has an interesting take on this. He states the following. From 1945 to 1990, we were told a great struggle pitted capitalism against socialism slash communism, chiefly the USS, USSR and China. Yet still today, U.S. leaders demonize Russia and China despite the end of communism in the USSR and the growth of capitalist enterprise in China. The explanation lies in U.S. capitalism's long history of using nationalism, not anti-communism, nationalism, uh, are, uh, which he uh, gives an example, it's foreign dangers, foreign threats to our, to our national sovereignty to justify um, the um, taxpayer-funded government actions to protect subsidize and support major capitalist dom dom dominant position in the U.S. economy. So in the course of the 75 years of the Cold War, the U.S. has spent many trillions of dollars protecting U.S. corporations from the slings and arrows of competition, the normal economic downturns of capitalism, and it's caused the destruction of the lives and livelihoods in our own country and waging along with waging so-called anti-communist wars across the globe and attacking our own citizens as traitors and fifth colonists for holding views in any way critical of capitalism. So, uh, you know, I kind of suspected this all along, that this wasn't really about capitalism versus socialism, uh, which can easily coexist with each other. Uh, but that there was something else going on. It was all about protecting American capital and extending U.S. empire around the globe. So um, we're going to see if a similar kind of ruse has been involved when we switch and talk to Doug Henwood, who's com coming right up, regarding austerity versus uh, a free-spending, um, people-oriented kind of budget. And thus I conclude. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. Right now, very happy to uh, welcome to the program Doug Henwood, a journalist, author. Uh, he's author of the book After the New Economy, Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom. In my turn, Hillary Clinton targets the presidency. Doug hosts Behind the News, a weekly radio program broadcast on KPFA in Berkeley, California, which covers the world of economics and politics from the local to the global. Doug uh, is very well known as the founder and editor of the widely read Left Business Observer, published from 1986 until 2013. Doug, thanks so much for making time to come on our uh, Resistance Roundtable program oh, this morning. Oh, I always like uh, being on your show. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, as you know, Richard Hill and Ruth Ann Baumgartner are here with us. Just to kick things off, um, I, I just would uh, recap some of what Richard already said, and that is... Uh, Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and he, he 
broadly demonized government and its programs that formed the foundation of the nation's social safety net for the poor, elderly, and sick. And certainly in the uh, 40 years that followed, you had a lot of Democratic presidents sign on to that. Uh, 1996, the State of the Union address, Bill Clinton proclaimed the era of big government is over. So now we have Joe Biden. He's proposed multiple uh, uh, jobs, a family program, the COVID uh, relief program, totaling about $6 trillion. And I'm wondering, as, as we begin this conversation, Doug, are we finally seeing an end to uh, Ronald Reagan's legacy of austerity and uh, the mantra of government is bad ideology? You know, before I uh, say good things about Biden's uh, domestic policies, which are certainly far better than I expected, I, I want to say that the foreign policy is appalling. Uh, and uh, if anything, it's more frightening than Trump's because Trump was, you know, had nothing but clowns and incompetence work for him, whereas uh, the Biden administration brings back all the old Democratic foreign policy professionals who may actually um, be more competent than running a horrible policy. So that's, you know, I want to put that out front before I carry on. I saw an appalling, terrifying uh, clip from uh, Hillary Clinton the other day where she uh, delivered a talk to uh, Chatham House, the, uh, the British elite foreign policy club, uh, where she was going on and on about China in the most hostile way. Uh, and uh, she wanted to take back the means of production from the Chinese, which was a very strange turn of phrase, but she, you know, apparently China has expropriated our means of production and we need to get it back. Um, I can think of better agents to um, expropriate the means of production than the U.S. government or whatever Hillary has in mind. But uh, in any case, I mean, that, that stuff is really frightening. Uh, and uh, when she was Secretary of State, uh, she really pushed a very anti-China policy, and uh, I think you know the Democrats are really going back to that. And of course, they've been very anti-Russia, so it's a, it's an ugly, ugly package. And uh, as I said, probably more frightening because there actually is some competence behind it. But on the domestic side, I have to say I didn't expect anything like this from Biden. I expected uh, something like Obama, um, a too small stimulus package, uh, then. Uh, uh, a quick turn to austerity. And uh, it looks like uh, Biden is not doing that at all. Uh, these are very ambitious programs. They're certainly not you know, eco-socialism. But uh, the, uh, the the quantity of the income supports involved is enormous. The, the, um, the in investment package, the infrastructure package he's proposing, child care, um, these are really significant things. And yes, some of these are temporary programs with expiration dates attached to them, but uh, still, um, it's going to be hard to take them away. Uh, the right understands very um, clearly that uh, you just cannot give people anything because then they'll want more. So that's why they sometimes seem really trivial in their opposition to the most you know, symbolic government programs, but I think they understand that uh, the most dangerous thing for them politically is raising expectations. And you know, people like getting $1,400 checks in the mail. People complain that they weren't $2,000 checks, but still, uh, they meant an awful lot to, to people. Uh, the quantity of money involved, uh, trillions of dollars of direct income support, absolutely unprecedented, uh, kept the economy from falling to pieces, but also um, has been uh, uh, really helped an awful lot of people um, keep their noses above water. So uh, it's just 
far, far more than I expected from him. And I think there really does seem to be a shift in the discourse. And there are probably a lot of reasons for it, but one of them has to be uh, the growth of, of a left wing in the Democratic Party. And we can complain about its shortcomings and compromises and all that, but still, it's not the Democratic Party of uh, Bill Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Council. It is, um, has a very substantial progressive wing now that uh, is really something that Biden has to listen to and is clearly responding to. I mean, certainly there's also um, some evidence that uh, that China, the China's successes, uh, are, um, uh, are are kind of a wake-up call to uh, the American elite that they realize that uh, China's competence and the um, the uh, very successful economic development. Um, you know, they built about 10,000 miles of high-speed rail in the time that we were debating building a <laughs> a little railroad in Ohio. I think. Um, you know, they, they, that's really impressive, and I think there's some degree of envy and fear. There's also the uh, the issue of China really, um, it's going to take some time, but, you know, really beginning to be a credible rival as hegemon to the U.S. Um, that, that, I think, is causing some elite concern. But there's also, I think, uh, the left should take some uh, credit for um, the, the quality and quantity of what Biden is doing. Thank you, Doug. I, I know Richard, uh, you know, our panelist here, has a, has a question or comment. Uh, thanks, Doug and Scott. Um, yeah, uh, Doug, I um, have been noticing, uh, along with millions of others, that um, for the past 40 years we've been living under an austerity economy in which we were always at risk of death by deficit. And uh, now suddenly someone flipped the switch and the economy has been begun to uh, freely uh, flow money in support of a whole range of social programs that support working people from, uh, and, and protecting them from being sucked down uh, like some kind of black hole of economic collapse that we're continuing to experience. So I'm just wondering how such a precipitous and, and drastic and radical switch could, could happen um, after 40 years of us being believing that uh, that austerity was the only way to uh, responsibly uh, function uh, in a uh, you know a, a competitive capitalist versus uh, I guess not so much always communist but uh, in the world of rivals, economic rivals around the world, how did how did this happen so precipitously? That's a really good question. I'm sure books are going to be written about this uh, someday. But uh, I think a couple of things are going on. One is, as I said, I think the agitation coming from the left wing of the Democratic Party, starting with the Sanders campaign, uh, the election of you know the Squad and other pretty progressive people to Congress, uh, successes. By uh, the growth of DSA, um, an organization I should say I belong to, so maybe you know, advertising something uh, I have an interest in. Um, the election of socialists to the Chicago City Council. There's now a socialist caucus in the New York State Legislature. These are remarkable developments, and I think that has something to do with it. But I, I, a lot of the mainstream Democrats also learned a lesson from the Obama years, and I've got this from some pretty well-connected sources, so I'm not just making this up, uh, that they saw what happened with Obama. He had the big stimulus package, which was watered down uh, under the uh, pressure coming from the likes of Larry Summers. And 
and they quickly turned to austerity. Uh, within three months after passing a stimulus package, Obama or somebody speaking for him was on the phone to Thomas Friedman saying, okay, next we're going to cut entitlements. Uh, so they, you know, having done this successful stimulus package has really kept us from having a rerun of the Great Depression. Uh, then they... Um, then they immediately started thinking about cutting Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and so that, you know, that was you know, evidence that that, that kind of uh, the austerity mentality that you spoke of was really still dominant. But it was a political disaster. They, uh, they suffered big defeats in the midterm elections. It, in 2010, the uh, Democratic Party continued to lose uh, governorships, state legislatures, uh, in massive numbers, record-breaking numbers. And... Um, I think some of the more sensible people, even within the Democratic establishment, looked at this and saw this is not something we want to do again. So I think they did learn that lesson. Uh, and given the magnitude of the crisis that we've been through, um, that uh, they realized that you know you need to be, you need to be big, go big. And certainly Joe, Joe Biden, who seemed like the you know, the ultimate uh, deal maker, conventional guy, uh, good friend of the credit card industry. You know we know all know. Um, uh, his uh, austere and vicious background, but uh, this this rather unimpressive character has turned out to be uh, I don't know if I call him a, um, a leader, maybe a vehicle of some kind of uh, transformation um, in um, not really you know, fiscal politics, uh, which is really some of the essence of what the state is all about, but you know discourse, ideology has really been quite a shift, uh, and it's very popular. These programs, you know, poll at sixty percent or higher. Um, and Republicans are reduced to uh, talking nonsense about critical race theory. Um, so it's, it's really a, a remarkable turn. I'm sure <laughs> it'll all go sour at some point, this being the United States of America. But um, right now, it is just, it's just it's a remarkable turn to watch. Just a quick comment. Ruth Ann's got a, a question. But I, I did want to observe that, of course, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is certainly a trigger for what we've seen unfold with Biden but also a recognition of the, uh, of, of the record-breaking um, economic inequality in the country, which I think the Democrats con- were concerned, uh, devolved to the benefit of Donald Trump, where people had grievance about our economic system. And I think there's some recognition on the part of Democrats. They have to do something about economic inequality. I hope they go far enough. But I'm sorry. Ruth, you had a question. Well, now, you've, now you've made me want to go in two directions in, at once instead of just one, Scott. Uh, because I've been reading all the, all the peeved um, tsunami on Facebook uh, from people who are against any kind of free college education, saying that people who go to college free will do something useless like major in English literature. <laughs> that was my major. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> I also did three years of graduate English, so I'm... Yeah, I'm and, well and then they also that. say, uh, we're not going to go into debt for somebody else's kids. We went into debt for ourselves, and that's the only way you appreciate life. I assume that most of these people are, you know, shills. Uh, or never paid any attention in school, whatever level they went to. Uh, but the, it's a voice that, that is churning in that extreme, undo all this, undo all this, undo all this. Meanwhile, what my original question was is Mitch McConnell is doing his best to tell us from jump, you know, this stops in 2022. We are ready to undo it all. We're going to take it back and we're going to undo it all. Do you think this is... Uh, 
going to increase the, or does he think, this is going to increase the enthusiasm for squelching Biden's efforts or and, and or increase the pressure to compromise with the Republicans so that they won't hate, our, hate the, the uh, legislation so much, um, which I assume will undo everything the way the, the Republicans undid uh, Obama's initiatives as well. Yeah, well, you know, McConnell said, uh, and, and his colleagues said something similar when, Ob- uh, when Obama took office, <laughs> oh, Biden, I almost said, when Obama took office, um, that you know, we just want to block everything. We want to make sure this president fails. And here they are again, trying the same game. Uh, Obama, strangely, was just not a very good politician. I don't think he's a very good salesman. He never really pushed anything he'd done. Um, he would put out a, a proposal and uh, assume that just because it was so brilliant, uh, because he was so brilliant, that it would uh, be popular and succeed. And he would never do all the work of politics, whether working Congress or working the public. Uh, and he was kind of bored by all that sort of things that politicians are supposed to do. Biden is not. And it's really remarkable to watch um, them being aware that they have to sell these policies and remind people uh, that, you know, uh, we're really trying to help out here. Uh, This is the kind of thing that Obama never did. But also, you know, Biden is also much more skilled at working Congress. Uh, there's a story that uh, um, Harry Reid took Obama aside uh, shortly after he got to the Senate, like a year, year and a half, and said, you're just not cut out for this kind of work. You just uh, don't have that, that back-slapping sensibility that uh, t- what it takes for success in the Senate. So why don't you run for president? Um, and, you know, uh, Biden has that kind of backslapping sensibility and is capable of working with Congress. I mean, it's not LBJ who can, you know, who was very successful at twisting arms and wielding carrots and sticks in um, um, elegant and successful combination. But um, uh, he is, I think, a, a much better politician in some sense than Obama was. So I don't know. I don't think McConnell may not, it, the, the magic may not work the same time uh, this time. Uh, these programs are very, very popular. The big stimulus package was not so popular, and a lot of people thought it was ridiculous. It got mixed up in people's minds with the, the, the financial bailout. Um, and uh, it just never had the kind of appeal that, uh, the, that these proposals do. You know, people are struggling to pay for childcare. Government offers to help you pay childcare. We didn't say no. Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. doesn't like this. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, everyone assumes that the Democrats will lose uh, control of Congress in uh, the midterm elections. I think there's a chance that they may uh, retain or even expand um, their, their, their control if, as long as these things continue and prove continue, uh, popular um, and we see some kind of uh, economic exp- recovery and expansion coming out of COVID. Um, and then you know, the vaccinations, uh, Biden is doing a pretty good job of getting vaccines out. You know, all this stuff is potentially quite popular. So I don't know. McConnell just looks like a, a sour, retentive, cruel character. And I think a lot of the certainly to me, but I think he may look that way to a lot of other people as well. Doug, do you think um, the Democrats as a party have the will to buck Wall Street and attack economic inequality head on? Uh, Well, that's a good question. Um, They're certainly doing something in that uh, direction right now. Uh, I think the more enlightened people on Wall Street, and it's a pretty small crowd because there's some really, you know, reactionary troglodytes and libertarians and lunatics, uh, especially in like the hedge fund private equity world, not so much the big banks. But the, um, uh, 
uh, I think some of the more sophisticated ones realize that there are some real issues of systemic stability involved uh, if, if we sustain these levels of inequality. And insecurity uh, for people, you know, the bottom, I don't know, third, 30, 40 percent of the income distribution, the level of you know, insecurity and want is very, very high. And I think they're worried about that. They want to do something. Um, not anything is going to reduce their wealth or power, but they feel like something needs to be done. Now, for the moment, uh, Wall Street has been uh, uh, rooting for expansionary policies, uh, so they're not really objecting to uh, the fiscal extravagance that uh, Biden is indulging in. If it becomes a matter of taking money from them, and we see this around some of the tax increases, if it becomes a matter of taking them and taking money from them and giving it to poorer people, then they might complain. Um, it will be interesting to see how, how, how far Biden is willing to take that fight. But there's also a... Uh, not, not exactly on topic, but somewhat related. There's also a growing constituency on, on Wall Street, constituency on Wall Street, to do something about climate change. And it's timid and corporate, yes, all those sorts of things. But there has been a, a, something of a shift in that kind of thinking. And one of the leading figures uh, on Wall Street uh, who was who involved in that, uh, Brian Deese uh, at uh, BlackRock, is now um, uh, a senior economic advisor to Biden. And some of that that Wall Street sensibility about climate change um, is um, uh, going to uh, be visible in, in Biden policy going forward. And, um, you know, it's, it's not what ideal. It's not, like I said earlier, it's not eco-socialism, but it's certainly a lot better than what we certainly saw under Trump, but also what we saw under previous Democratic administrations. I think they're, they're taking climate crisis uh, more seriously uh, than any of their predecessors have. And, you know, that's an important change. Doug, this is Richard again. I, I wanted to go back again to this uh, austerity versus uh, spending or free spending toward uh, social welfare. So what, what are we to make of the 40 years of austerity that we've lived through? Uh, was there any valid rationale to it, <clears throat> you know, something that uh, would explain the um, meek, uh, submission to it by everybody, including the Democrats, including liberals. Oh no, we can't. We can't possibly go into deficit spending. I mean, how did how did this sort of uh, this uh, this illusion <laughs> descend upon us, and and how was it maintained for forty years, only to be revealed, uh, like the Wizard of Oz, as 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 a complete, uh, uh, just a, like a sort of a, uh, like a little made-up thing that uh, all, all you got to do is change direction, in fact, go in the opposite direction, and uh, the world doesn't come to an end. I'm just uh, curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, if we take it back to the late 70s when there was hyperinflation, not hyperinflation, but, you know, very high, inflation approaching 20% uh, at one point, uh, and um, just... The sense of economy just very weak and in crisis. Now, some of these fears are exaggerated, but that sense of inflation, which leads to a, a sense that things are out of control uh, and often leads people to want some kind of discipline and almost authoritarian crackdown. Um, so we go back then, there was a certain rational core to austerity to break that inflation. Now, well, there are other ways it could have been done, far less cruel ways that that could have been done. Uh, there were debates with the Democratic Party at that point to uh, uh, enter into some kind of 
uh, uh, economic planning structure. Um, that was the original Humphrey Hawkins legislation, which was uh, trying to uh, promote full employment, but they were looking at um, uh, uh, like French models of, of planning, uh, um, economic planning, to, to, to get a hold on inflation and also to uh, uh, provide um, uh, employment for everyone. Um, so we could have gone in two directions at that point, in that kind of more interventionist, statist approach, or in um, the austere direction. And we should remember that it was a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, who appointed Paul Volcker, who then uh, you know, put, pushed up interest rates towards 20% and created deep recession in the early 80s. And that uh, broke inflation, but it also broke back labor unions. It led mm -hmm. to union busting. It led to speed up. It led to the um, uh, up, massive upward redistribution of income, uh, the um, total dominance of Wall Street in, in um, economic policymaking, uh, and uh, that you know, we had many years of that. Then we had the 2008 financial crisis. You'd think that that was, would have been the crisis of the whole model, that whatever appropriateness it might have had in the early 1980s had completely expired. Um, and you know, inflation was not the problem. The problem at that point was financial instability, inequality, uh, slow economic growth, uh, a lot of crappy jobs. You know, the, the, the set of problems had really changed dramatically in those, what, uh, 38 years. And um, so, I, but nothing really changed. That austerity mentality survived. Uh, and if you look at you know, um, the actual fiscal record of that period, there was that little stimulus in the early Obama years that quickly turned into uh, government fiscal policy. At that point, actually became tight, became negative, became a drag on the economy, which is why that um, expansion. Uh, period was so weak, uh, and that's certainly one of the things that led to Donald Trump was precisely that sense that the economy was uh, just under that kind of squeeze coming from above. Um, but there was not that kind of, uh, there was not a real um, break in, in the ideology or, or the thinking about how, um, how to govern an economy um, that you thought might have come out of that crisis. It did seem like it should have been a real, uh, led to a real shift the way the 70s crises led to a real shift, but it didn't. So we may be just be seeing something like the delayed effects of that, that people have finally seen, that, uh, and even people at elite levels have finally seen that this was a disastrous policy, that whatever relevance it might have had uh, 40 years ago has completely expired and uh, it's time to do something new. Um, but, yeah, this is just a, it's, it's a, fascinating, um, it's a fascinating study in like, political psychology and political economy. I don't, what's, it's, it, you know, it can come up with some reasons why it might be happening, but it's still really hard <laughs> to explain completely. It's just uh, quite shocking and novel. Mm -hmm. Well, Doug, it's been great having you on the program tonight. We're going to have to uh, move to our next guest, but how would our um, listeners find some of the things you're you're writing about? Uh, certainly, the uh, the radio program behind the news. Could you leave our our listeners with the uh, web address? Yeah, everything I do you can find on lbo-news.com. Lbo-news.com, which is is a blog. I also have a a piece, a very large <laughs> essay on the uh, the rod of the American ruling class that Jacobin uh, just uh, opened up uh, on its website. Um, so you can check that out. It's big and long and full of uh, examination of uh, our rotten elite. All right. Well, Doug, <laughs> we'll have to have you back soon to talk more about those issues. And uh, thanks again for joining Anytime, us. Anytime, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Doug Henwood, journalist, author, and uh, radio broadcaster. This is uh, WPCAN's Resistance Roundtable, and uh, 
Richard and uh, uh, Ruth Ann. Hopefully you can do a little reflection on uh, some of the things Doug talked about while I uh, reach our next guest, Nora Massey. I, I liked the, the, the way that he used uh, the, uh, the, the uh, imagery that strikes the public because last night I was listening to the news and was quite thrilled that uh, there's been hiring in the IRS so that tax cheats can be pursued and the expectation is that as much as a trillion dollars in unpaid taxes can be recovered from the rich. So suddenly the image is being shifted if we choose to take that shift from burdens on the noble wealthy to catch those cheaters and I and I hope that uh, I hope that that impression uh, change works because it would be nice to think that I wasn't the only one paying taxes anymore. Richard yeah, indeed. Um, well, I'm I'm still pondering this uh, precipitous transformation from uh, austerity to f- free spending toward uh, social toward the social good. Mm-hmm. And um, one question, you know, follow up that I, I would ask Doug if we had more time would be, uh, you know, what what are the potential downsides of deficit spending like what where can that lead us the fed you know everybody the cliche is the fed is just spent you know printing money whenever we need more well it just prints some more and we're not on the gold standard so uh you know there's nothing backing that up um could this have happened <laughs> to bail us out of earlier downturns that occurred in the uh in the late 70s and and the 80s and uh was it all just a ruse this austerity thing and uh, so anyway um it's it's really uh it's it's really just an amazing riddle for me and uh i think i, I got a lot of out of what doug said he he gave us some history and his uh his technical analysis is really good so well, I'm happy to uh, let you know that uh, Nora Massey is on the line right now. Uh, Nora is a member of the Yale University College class of 2022, double majoring in English and Environmental Studies. She's a pas- she's passionate about organizing around a wide range of issues relating to environmental justice, including sustainable urban planning, universal health care, immigration, gender and sexuality equity, and education reform. Nora works for the Office of Sustainability as a sustainability liaison to a residential college and organizers with the Democratic Socialists of America and the Yale Endowment uh, Justice Coalition. And uh, we're very happy Nora could join us this morning to talk about her recent opinion piece uh, titled It's Time for a Connecticut Green New Deal, published in the May 4th edition of the Connecticut Mirror. Nora, thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, Ruth Ann, I believe you have the first uh, opening salvo for our guest, Nora. Opening salvo. It's kind of a broad salvo. Nora, I, I read your article with great interest and and then saw that you are a student. And when you wrote to us you, uh, in response to our invitation, you said, I, I want you to know realize that I'm a student. And I, I, I am proudly a member of the college class of 68, and we are... Th- 
We are the ones who went to college starting uh, expecting that we'd have normal lives and wound up, you know, protesting war, uh, civil inequality, damage to the planet, women's rights, and, and the whole schmear. And, and many of my colleagues didn't actually finish college because they got so caught up in, um, in political and uh, social causes. Um, I was wondering if you got to Yale the way you are with your list of concerns and, and engagements, or if that's something that's been developing as a result of Yale programs or just mixing with other students in the current world. Yeah, um, yeah. So first of all, it's, it's um, nice to talk to another Yaley. Um, I, so I, um, I think that it's a combination of things. I think I came, I came to Yale um, already really interested in issues of um, specifically education and the environment. Um, I before I came to Yale, I had been in a whole host of um, different educational environments. Um, I had been homeschooled, then I had been in several um, in public schools, and then I had been in a private school and scholarship in New York City. And so I was had really done the whole sort of rounds of what the education system was like, and I was really angry at how poor the public ed- uh, education system is. Um, and then I was also separately sort of passionate about environmental issues, having grown up in the city and just um, specifically, like, seeing the kind of big disparities in terms of, terms of like, who has access to parks, who has access to clean water. Um, and then when I came to Yale, I, I think that I really realized that there were so many coalitions that brought all of my interests together. So I, I think that I had a lot of, you know, different uh causes that I cared about, but Yale and, you know, the Endowment Justice Coalition, the Yale chapter of Democratic Socialists of America really made me realize how all of these are so related, and I I can't kind of be organizing around one of them without organizing around all of them. Nora, could you uh, tell our listeners about uh, the focus of your opinion piece, which was the Connecticut Green New Deal? There's actual legislation there. Maybe summarize a bit about the importance of this uh, from your perspective. And what's happening in the Connecticut state legislature and around the around the state? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I wrote this piece because I was I think you know a lot of people are thinking right now about how can Connecticut recover from COVID nineteen and the devastating economic consequences it's having on the state, a state that was already um, struggling, especially in terms of job creation. Um, and I think that the Green New Deal is a way to rebuild. It's the way to rebuild the state um, and, and bring it, bring back jobs, um, uh, bring back people. Um, and I think, you know, so the Connecticut, wh- one of the main reasons why I think this would really not be so hard to pass um, in Connecticut is that Connecticut is already leading um, in terms of climate change. Um, the, the Governor's Council um, on Climate Change, which... Um, uh, was established in 2015, and then um, Governor Lamont really has uh, um, made it more important and made it a huge part of his, uh, you know, legacy. Um, came out with these 61 comprehensive recommendations in their last report that, um, you know, made the state one of the most uh, ambitious uh, states in terms of greenhouse gas emissions reductions, um, in terms of uh, renewable energy, in terms of transportation, all of those things. 
Um, and, you know, at the same time, um, the Connecticut General Assembly is trying to debate a bill right now to um, incentivize job growth um, and business expansion because Connecticut is really struggling in terms of um, uh, job growth. Um, and, you know, Connecticut is also considering the transportation uh, becoming part of the Regional Transportation Climate Initiative, um, which is, you know, as it sounds, a regional initiative to make transportation um, cleaner um, and easier uh, and more publicly accessible. Um, and, you know, Connecticut has had variations of the Green New Deal that were sort of introduced and then kind of trailed off. So in, in 2019, they had what was called the Green Economy Act, um, which kind of never got off the table. Um, literally, and then uh, this year in, in 2020, there was a Green New Deal that was introduced by the Labor Committee, but again, it, in February, and it, it just hasn't gone anywhere. And I think that um, that needs to be known, and, and it needs to be uh, pushed forward. Richard, do you have a, a comment or question for Nora Massey, our guest? Yeah, let me give it a shot. Uh, Nora, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, when the... Um, 2018 election happened. Um, I, I live in uh, a town on the shoreline, Brantford, Connecticut, and um, you know it occurred to me that um, I got involved in town politics to try to elect the uh, representative town meeting members and uh, um, change the first select selectman from a very business-friendly guy to uh, somebody who was more environmentally oriented and uh, had more progressive approach to problems in the town and I it occurred to me why, why don't we why don't the Democrats in town campaign on a Green New Deal for Branford and uh, so I you know it, it's it's difficult you know it's difficult enough to imagine you know a, a Green New Deal uh, contained within the boundaries of a state, given that there's so much, um, you know, inter interplay between, you know, national interplay between states. Um, the my, my proposal went nowhere here, but, w like, what are the mechanisms for making something like this happen at the state level? Um, yeah. So, yeah, first of all, I just, I, I totally agree. I think that, you know, I think that it's certainly it's time for a Connecticut Green New Deal, but it's time for a federal Green New Deal um, as well. And I think that, you know, the idea of pushing these um, sort of more uh, progressive states like Connecticut, like New York, to pass Green New Deals would be as a sort of segue into passing a federal um, Green New Deal. So that's, that's one. Um, but the main thing that, you know, in terms of, of first of all, funding, um, I think uh, a lot of the concerns that I've read about people passing, like about the state passing a Green New Deal have been around how, how are we going to pay for this. Um, and I think that, you know, New York State Justice passed uh, a couple weeks ago, passed a, um, a higher income tax rate for its wealthiest residents. Um, like literally only the top like 1% of residents is going to be paying more. Um, New Jersey, uh, which has similar, both New York and New Jersey have similar like um, income inequality to Connecticut, um, also has um, an increased tax rate on people only who earn more than $1 million annually, which is a very small percentage of the population. Um, 
so that's in terms of how we would pass it at state level and, and, and fund it. That is my proposal. And then in terms of like, you're, you're totally right that, you know, it's the, the environment, the way we run like healthcare and environment and stuff is so interconnected. Um, and I think it would be challenging. I think that, you know, the Connecticut um, can follow New York right now um, is trying to pass the New York Health Act, which would give universal health care um, to all New Yorkers. Um, Connecticut could follow a similar uh, a similar path to include universal health care in its Green New Deal. Um, and then ensure, you know, really ensuring that it's bringing in green businesses and green jobs. Um, I think that versions of the Green New Deal have been passed at, at tons of different levels, including Maine in 2019 has its own um, uh, you know, the city of L.A. has its own Green New Deal. And, and obviously, it can't. They're, they're, you're right that it's not perfect, but the, the idea is to create as many green jobs to um, sponsor as many um, environmentally um, certified uh, manufacturing sectors um, and to ensure that we're not building, you know, non-renewable energy sources anymore and that the electric grid that we're on is um, renewable and uh, meets all the population's needs, not just the wealthy's needs. Thanks for that. So uh, first I need to uh, say that I'm Dickinson College, class of 68, not Yale, class of 68, but both good schools. Um, The other thing, what I get, uh, what I got as an image in my mind when I was reading your article, and I, and I think it's a, a brilliant concept that may be represented by this image. Uh, You've seen the Matryoshka, the Russian carvings with the tiny doll inside a slightly larger doll inside a s- yeah yeah and i'm thinking you know if if a town can can uh look at enacting a green new deal for the town and then the state can do that for the state then inevitably there can be a great big matryoshka that's the federal government that's uh that has found its way to a Green New Deal, too. Now, with those dolls, each one is a little bit different in terms of their outfits, but there are always pieces of continuity. So if you were looking for the thing that should, that of necessity has to be campaigned for in a local Green New Deal, a state Green New Deal, and a federal Green New Deal, what's the first common element that you that you see as necessary? And, Nora, we only have about a minute left, so I just want to make you aware of that. Okay, um, I will try to answer that in a minute. Um, I think, I, I, I think every state is. I totally agree that every state is different. I think the common thing that needs to be focused on in the Green New Deal, um, at all levels, is thinking about communities that have. Again, I wrote this article in response to the COVID nineteen crisis. Communities that have really been hurt by the COVID nineteen crisis, and by that I mean communities of color. I mean working class communities. Um, I mean, women, disabled people, um, all of those people who have been supporting in, in large numbers the Green New Deal for a long time um, and who have the healthcare system has failed them over and over again, the education system has failed them over and over again. I think that they need to be the priority and at the forefront of every, of every policy at, at local, state, and federal levels. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Nora, for uh, uh, making time to come on our program to talk about your article. Again, it's titled, It's Time for a Connecticut Green New Deal, published in the May 4th edition of the Connecticut Mirror. So thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Nora Massey, Yale University student and author of the aforementioned opinion piece. That's it for our program 
this morning. We hope you'll join us for another edition of Resistance Roundtable the second Saturday of each month at 10 a.m. here on listener-sponsored WPCAN. We hope we'll see you or hear you next, next month. Take care. Support comes from Bridgeport's Mayan Dreams Imports, a wholesaler distributor of handcrafted folk art and home and garden decor. This weekend, they open the warehouse for their annual spring sales event from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day, featuring items for the home and the garden, including hand-painted planters, clay pots, garden statuary, folk art, and all from Mexico. Mayan Dreams Imports is located at 725 Housatonic Avenue in downtown Bridgeport, a mile from the train station. Man, Lisa, I never thought we'd find ourselves stranded on a desert island. Kev, it's like Castaway with no Wilson volleyball and no turntable. Yeah, but I have my solar-powered boombox, so we're good. Awesome, and I just happen to have my desert island favorites with me that are going up on my WPKN shelf. I've got Coltrane's Love Supreme and Charles Lloyd Fish Out of Water. I've got Keith Jarrett at the Deerhead Inn, Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige, and Mingus. I've got Shoes of the Fisherman's Wife. And I've got Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, Sinatra Live at the Sands with Count Basie, Motown's Greatest Hits, Duke Ellington's Indigos, and Charles Mingus' uh, Um. You have Mingus too, Kev? Great minds think alike. So all of these are going up on my shelf at WPKN for a minimum donation of $89.50 per shelf. I'm going to name my shelf after my dog, Red. And I'm dedicating mine to my dad. That is so cool. They'll be honored forever. You know, if anyone else wants to support WPKN and sponsor a shelf, this is what they have to do. WPKN is moving, and our incredible music collection is moving with us. To help fund the new library, we are offering donors the chance to sponsor a shelf. A gift of $89.50 will get your name set on one of our new library shelves. Visit WPKN.org to donate, and while you're at it, use 